Global health governance is not fit for purpose, and it doesn't represent a vast majority of global needs and wants and desires and people on the ground and what's going to affect them. And it gets captured. Today I sit down with Garrett Brown, Professor of Global Health Policy at the University of Leeds. You can talk about rights and freedoms, but none of those matter if you don't have good health. It's a fundamental part of what it means to be human and have any minimally decent life. Brown and his research team were hired by the World Health Organization to determine whether its $31.1 billion plan for pandemic preparedness and response was justifiable or even feasible. The worry is that if you're asking nations to pony up roughly $26 billion, where are they going to find that money? They're going to find it from existing programs. Indonesia has just basically suspended their polio program and moved those human resources into vaccines. And we saw this with malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS. Resources were being shifted from certain national budget lines into pandemic preparedness. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Garrett Brown, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Garrett, you run a research group at the University of Leeds that provides quite a bit of information to the WHO. Yeah. In your unique role, you have a view into how this very opaque system, at least to me, operates. Yeah. And so here we are, we're gonna take a look. But for starters, how do you end up being someone that provides this profound pandemic research information to a group like the WHO? Um, so in the early days of the pandemic, I wrote a piece for the um, BMJ, which is a British medical journal, uh, sort of um, suggesting that we have five paradigm failures in the way we're thinking about the, the pandemic. And that was read by the head of evidence and analytics at the WHO. And he said, well, we're trying to think of a different way of approaching these things, my unit. Would you look over some stuff for me? And then I said, well, I think we need to evidence this better. And so uh, he invited me to do that. And we provided 343 pieces of evidence for this new framework that was coming out. And uh, then I just started getting more and more involved in different committees. And, and the more recent work we've been doing for them is thinking about um, financing these massive costs uh, for a pandemic preparedness that people are, that are talking about and the feasibility of doing that, of actually financing these numbers. $31 billion a year was the number that's, that's been floated. I mean, unbelievable in scale, and we're gonna definitely talk yeah, about this. Yeah. Before I jump into that, what were these paradigm problems that you saw at the beginning? Uh, so the first one is the way we think about uh, health security. Instead of thinking about um, preparedness and prevention, we always talk about preparedness and response. So I was saying that there's many things we can do to try to prevent these things, not just prepare for them and you know, pop better population health, uh, up, look at upstream determinants, and just think more sophisticatedly about um, how to do that. And the other one, the main one that I was talking about is what I called the Pasteurian paradigm, right? That you wait for a pathogen, you sit, and in this case, lock down, and then you wait for the cure, to come and then you roll that out to as far as you can to 100% and you're saved. Where are the therapeutics in that? There's other things you can do to think about um, and you know, more systems approach to, to preparedness and prevention than just that model. And I was saying that, that that's a, 
we need to start thinking about health systems and how you know how you have more resilient health systems and having more adaptive health systems and it can't just be this Pasteurian paradigm which is what we ended up doing and uh, I was quite critical of that and the, and the WHO got it and said well we're working on something this we're calling it health systems for health security and we want to think about uh, a more sustainable way of preparing and preventing these type of events. Well, so, so, well, first of all, this is one of the more, you know, one of the few hopeful things I've heard <laughs> about the system, that they were actually interested in your work yeah. and, you know, invited you to contribute. Didn't, I mean, the response didn't seem to go the way you were suggesting, but at least there was interest. Yeah, and I think yeah. they knew they couldn't change the course of the, the way the momentum was heading. This, so this was a long-term project for them that mm. we want to think about how to strengthen health systems in a way that actually have routine health effects for the average person on a daily basis, but also can cover some of the concerns we have about you know, health security and not, not have this sort of like 1980s uh, warlike mentality about health, health security. Let's, let's, let's talk about population health. Let's talk about other things like that. Uh, and so I thought that was refreshing because I've been you know, I've been working in health systems and health system strengthening in the African context for ages. And, you know, it's really dear to me that, you know, you need robust systems that can take shocks and do routine health for people to make them healthier in order for them to be more resilient. More resilient people are, are more secure. It just makes sense. Uh, Most recently, um, you've been working on providing analysis and research on how to how to create a 31 billion dollars a year global infrastructure for pandemic preparedness and response and response if i if i understand it so 31 billion dollars a year 31.1 billion is the estimated need for pandemic preparedness and response at all national regional and global level this is what the who g20 and world bank are estimating is the requirement for that. So, so how is this going to work for starters? Like, well, what is it that? Well, let's put it in perspective. Yeah. The total operating budget around uh, for the global fund, which is responsible for AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, three of the biggest communicable diseases, right? That's around four billion a year, and those are hard. Those are hard to finance already, right? That's already complicated. You have these annual replenishment models. Uh, there's a lot of squabbling about who's going to pay what, and you know they're already complicated with high transaction costs because you have to replenish them all the time. Um, now suddenly we're talking about 31.1 billion. How is it's just it's dwarfs. Even before we go there, maybe give us a sense of like where does that money come from. Um, you mean the money for the global fund? The global fund and the WHO. Uh, a, mix, a mixture of donors, usually um, high-income countries, United States, uh, the UK, Bill and Melinda Gates. So the usual funding sources, um, you know, overseas development aid for health is what they call it. And they, uh, you know, on an annual basis, a certain amount of the State Department will really relinquish a certain amount of money to these institutions. And the leaders at the G7 will commit a replenishment package for, say, the Global Fund. So we're willing to pay this much on an annual basis for the next you know, two years or three years. Um, and that's, that's where the money is generated. So usually high-income countries pay into these. these yeah. 
so it's basically from mostly from high-income countries, although a bit more, and then also from these large private foundations. Yeah. So at the moment, the kind of the big ones, you know, is Bill and Melinda Gates, obviously, but there's others. You know, Wellcome Trust is now has moved from kind of a research organization to a policy organization, and they're putting money into health. All right. So let's go back. So thirty-one billion dollars, extraordinary number, even given these numbers. Okay. So tell me about this. So the thirty-one point one billion. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that cost was calculated. Um, my research team gave some raw material, and lots of others gave raw material, and then a report was suddenly generated saying that these are what the costs are. Now, one of the questions is whether or not this is really what pandemic preparedness and response should cost, and how to justify those numbers. But those are the numbers being used. So the idea at the moment is that $4.7 billion is what's required at the global level in terms of coordinating surveillance and coordinating other mechanisms that they think are necessary. And there's, there's something like 92 indicators of what, you know, they, have, they call them buckets, and in each bucket you have indicators. Uh, and then at the, 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 the national level, we're asking states to come up collectively for their national programs to be in aligned with the global programs. And that's going to be about $26 billion a year. And the problem with this now is you're asking low-income countries to pony up this, you know, this money, and so the donors will have to cover that as well. So they're thinking that at the global level, um, donors will be required to come up with somewhere around 10 billion to 15 billion a year to cover those costs and the, the global level costs. You know, you said yourself, you don't even know exactly how this 31.1 billion was reached. There's different um, uh, groups that somehow contributed, and now, your worry, your job is to try to figure out how do you do that. Can we finance that? Yeah. And 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 what's you know what are the worrying trends around current financing of pandemic preparedness and response? And I think one of the things that worries me the most at the moment is, so we tracked you know official uh, development aid for health, right? And the OC the OECD every year come out with line items of you know what what are we spending our development aid on? And they they added one for COVID. Um, and for 2020, and it was an extraordinary amount of money. It's funny when you say it. They added a line item, but it was big. And it was yeah. a huge line item. And you start unpacking it that almost all the new development aid money went to COVID or into infectious disease control, right? And a lot of them were COVID-based, and a lot of that money went into to vaccines. But we started to say, okay, well, what, what are the effects of this? Um, and we saw some staggering numbers, right? Um, so basic health is a line item, and basic health fell by 34%, right? So you're shifting money from basic health into pandemic preparedness and response. Basic nutrition fell by 10%, right? So nutritional programs uh, is seeing money depleted. So we started looking into this further, and what about task shifting at the national level? And we saw that too. So for example, there's a study out of Indonesia where Indonesia has just basically suspended their polio program and move those human resources into vaccines, to, to administer vaccines. And we saw this with malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, um, reproductive health, that resources were being shifted from certain national budget lines into pandemic preparedness. So the worry is that if you're asking nations to pony up roughly 26 billion, um, where are they gonna find that money? They're gonna find it from existing programs. And just 
you know, and this is, you said this is close to your heart, yeah. on the ground in Africa, when you pull 34% from basic health and 10% from nutrition, and- It has and, impacts. And I mean, but what, why don't you tell me, what are the real world impacts of that on people? Well, I mean, it would just be less resources available to combat, you know, malnutrition and, uh, and there will be less resources available to strengthen health systems. And, you, you know, you, you think about some of these health systems, like in, definitely in remo very remote areas. You know, they have difficulty staffing them because no one wants to live out there. They have difficulty getting materials out there. Uh, and they have difficulty keeping the lights on sometimes. So health is important. You can talk about rights and freedoms, but... None of those matter if you don't have good health. You can't exercise any of those things. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental um, part of what it means to be human and have any minimally decent life. And so once you start taking from that, you know, there's a cascading effect uh, on people's ability to uh, engage in the economy, people's ability to engage in their government, the people's ability to take care of their children. And then those have knock-on effects. Uh, so the number is extraordinary. I do question the number. I'm not saying we shouldn't have pandemic preparedness. I'm just wondering if it needs to be 31.1 billion a year. And my, my guess is it doesn't. I guess I don't know if this is the elephant in the room. I'm sure you've thought about this, but you know, the pandemic response as it happened right. was largely poor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I think that's an understatement, but let's just say you, know, we're, you, you have a very subdued academic way of talking about these things. Let's just say it didn't work very well. Yeah, it didn't work right? very well. And the cost of that was 100 million people descending into poverty, among other things, upward transfer of wealth. And frankly, I would argue a lot of death that didn't need to happen if there was a smarter way of doing things. Is this being looked at? It is being looked at, but I don't know if it's being looked at as seriously as, I, I think there's a recognition, at least where, where I live, that. The, the lockdowns didn't have the effect that they wanted them to have. They, they, in the end, they were highly costly and not very uh, effective, right? Uh, and that there was other externalities that came from it, like increase in mental health issues, domestic violence increased, children not being educated. And those, you know, those have effects. Um, and I don't think we've quite calculated all those. One of the numbers I hear batted around is that over, that the, that COVID cost us somewhere between 12 and $20 trillion in stimulus packages, lost GDP, you know, all, you know, when you factor everything in. Things, yeah. um, and no one's come up with a really good solid number yet, but they're starting to try to figure that out. And that, that's massive. It's, unfa it's unfathomably And those massive. are opportunity costs. Because right. if you just think, well, what if we put $20 trillion into something else, right? What if we, you know, did something else with that money, um, or have that money be used in other ways at a more micro level in individuals' lives? Um, it would be profound. But what did we get for that twenty trillion in the end? As a society, um, certainly among our, our, our leadership and our policy setting, we forgot about the idea that everything is a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. What you do is cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Right the profound positive impact that money could have going and being in a different place is also unfathomable. Yeah. Or just almost. sticking with you, yeah. not coming from you into something else because ultimately this is being paid for by sovereign debt. So there's massive opportunity costs to 31.1 billion. Quickly, just 
for the benefit of our audience, def explain to me what opportunity cost is. Well, what, uh, what could you do with that money otherwise? Mm -hmm. And what benefits would you get from that? So everything has a sort of opportunity cost, right? What, what could have been the opportunities available to you if you would have done with that money something else? Um, or that time. Or just kept going yeah. with whatever you were doing in the first place. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. there are some major health issues that we should think about at the global level, you know, antimicrobial resistance. There, there are things that are, that are spooky out there and we're not very good at coordinating responses to and um, we're not taking seriously. But because of COVID-19 and because uh, people are angry about it, uh, about what happened and the loss that we're now thinking about pandemic preparedness. There's a lot of focus on it, but, and we should be prepared. We, you know, we should be thinking about these things. Of course we should be thinking about these things. But my worry is that there's so much focus on that and so much interest on it, and we're moving it very, very quickly. Decisions, you know, the pandemic treaty is moving very, very quickly. The pandemic fund, which already now exists in World Bank, that moved very, very quickly. Um, are we thinking these things outright in, in, the, in the right way, and you know, are we thinking about the opportunity costs here, and are, are we using the right numbers? And is it even feasible uh, you know, to generate 31.1 billion? And the answer is no, it's not feasible. Well, and it's not going to happen. I'll, I'm and, just gonna and maybe that's a good thing. Right, there, there was some kind of global coordination that happened, is kind of like, actually to me, when I look back in retrospect, for example, the deployment of these genetic vaccines. Not everybody, right? right? But, but there was a strong push, not just in the US and Canada, my home nation and, mm -hmm. and other places, but ev everywhere with very similar messaging. You know, everybody needs to get it, right? Right. When clearly the, the epidemiology clearly didn't demonstrate that yeah. from the beginning, yeah. right? So I, I'm even asking the question, is it a good idea to put so much control for a global response in one place. And yeah. because that's the, the, you know, this pandemic treaty and some of these international health regulations, as I've been looking for them and talking to experts, they really do push a lot of control. They require nations which are participating. Coordination me mechanisms. You need to have coordination mechanisms at the global level to, to, to suggest that you can operate solely on a sort of national level in, in today's world, I think is a non-starter anymore. So you, we do have to have coordination and that could be good, that could also be bad. Uh, I think there's a lot in re, you know, regional laboratory networks, right, in Africa, post Ebola, great idea. So not every na nation needs to ramp up all their laboratory facilities to the same level and have duplicating systems that are literally 100 miles away from each other. There's just a border in the middle. So by networking your laboratories, you increase information flows between them so you also increase your alert system between them, and you get economies of scale. And at the same time, you don't have to have all the expertise at every single state. And so, so those, those type of coordination mechanisms make, make sense to me. Um, what doesn't make sense to me is when uh, you, you remove context from these, these debates. So in health systems, you know, we always say context matters. Context matters. And con uh, contextual moderators, how external factors um, influence the way a health system can operate are important. You need to understand those. And the only way you can understand those is by understanding the context. We seem to remove that, right? I'll just give you one example. So the WHO comes out early on and says, uh, we need to vaccinate 70% of Africa. 
And African countries rightfully said, well, uh, we can, A, we can't afford this, and B, we're not sure about this. And people like myself were saying, like, you should not be sure about this because your mean age is 19. Your context is different than Italy, where you have an older, unhealthy population. You have a younger, more healthy population, and this may not be right for you. That's a contextual concern that moderates how you would want to roll out any kind of program or have any kind of program. We have to keep that in mind when we think about these coordination mechanisms at the global level while thinking like it, there's nothing wrong with having the right kind of international health regulations. Right? It would have been very good if China sent this material up within 72 hours, it was open source and people could start working on it. Now, they didn't do that, but that's what the IHR says and that makes perfect sense to me and it's a cheap, cheap thing to do. Um, right. So it's just about thinking more smartly and they're revising the international health regulations. I've had a look at them. Uh, a lot of it's the same old stuff. Some of it's better, some of it's worse. Uh, so these debates are taking place, and I, well, I guess my concern is let's just make these debates a little, a little bit longer, uh, more nuanced, more sophisticated, so we get to a better answer. Well, and I don't know if you, you want to comment this on this or not, but there's also this reality that certain players, and I have a particular interest and knowledge of communist China, are interested in co-opting such systems for their own benefit with not a lot of interest in the public health of many people. So, you know, this, this is a profound national security issue for sure. any nation. But right? I, I think the interest, I mean, everyone has interests, and that's sort of what politics is, right? Um, trying to come to some intersubjective agreement of, through interests. So, you know, of course, Communist China has their interests, and so does the United States, and we saw this with Big Pharma, we saw this with other, you know, other interests, and these interests are playing out. They're aligning their interests where they can. Um, they're competing. So the WHO, early on in the World Bank, were competing for who's gonna kind of control this pandemic fund. Where is it gonna be housed? Is it gonna be in the global fund? Is it gonna be a new FIF in the World Bank, which it turns out it is gonna be? There was a debate there. Uh, and then once decisions were made, you see that contestation kind of moved to cooperation or to alignment. But yeah, th th there's interests at all level. Years ago, there was this argument, we need to depoliticalize health. And I, I, you can't depoliticalize something as political as health, because you know, politics is about who gets what and why, right? So it's not that we need to depoliticalize it. We need to make better politics more legitimate, more accountable politics. What we have now is poor politics, but you can never depoliticalize health. It's, it's a deeply political issue. And I think it should be, because that's where you make, that's how you make decisions. Well, it, my concern is that, you know, you have players which say they're gonna play by the rules and they're absolutely uninterested in doing that, no. right? And let's go back yeah. to the IHR. Only 47% of countries were compliant with it by 2015. That's the international health regulations. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, that's what they said. You have five years to become compliant by 2015. No one made it, so they extended it, and it only got to 47%. So you, know, you can have these regulations and think they're draconian, but it doesn't mean that people are actually going to follow them. And there's no enforcement mechanism on that. You can name and shame. Uh, you can you can make uh, development aid conditional on you meet, meeting those. Um, you can inject money to try to help them do that. You can re, you can relieve sovereign debt to free up money for them to do it themselves. There's different ways to do it. Um, 
but you know, one of the problems is people aren't compliant with the rules that are there, and, and, and China was a bad citizen on this, um, and, and that should be noted. I keep hearing that the treaties are, have more force of you yeah. know, law. Uh, actually, you know, we, have a, we have an article in the, in the Epoch Times from last night as we're filming here talking about how um, the current U.S. administration hopes to ratify this treaty without the typical two-thirds Senate approval, that they have a method oh, really? to do that. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, um, so again, you know, a lot of these kind of accountability questions coming to mind, right? I, I, I'm not in favor of the treaty. Um, and I think it's just going to duplicate problems we already have anyway. Um, but yeah, a treaty is the highest form of international law you can have, right? Um, but even that, countries break treaties all the time. But I, I think that uh, that may not be the, the kind of coordination mechanism we need. And really, it's a knee-jerk reaction, right? It's that no one was following the IHRs, and no one was living up to their promise, and, and there was bad citizens, and there were bad citizens, right? Like, you know, China was a bad citizen on this. Um, so we need to elevate it to this extreme level. And, and I'm just wondering if there's other measures we can do that can align, get people together for cooperation uh, without having to be so, you know, a treaty. You, you've already told me a bit about why you're not for the treaty, but can you expand on this a little bit? You know, so is, is the main reason just because it has, it's so like, inherently coercive or what is the... Well, I don't know if it yeah. would be coercive. I, I mean, I don't... This is part of the problem. I don't know actually what it, the treaty is going to do. I know what they want to do with it, but um, there's not a lot of voices in the treaty in the early stages of it, and it got moved very quickly. Um, and I don't, the enforcement mechanisms are unclear, but you know, treaties do have enforcement mechanisms, but they have to be written into the, the, the treaty, and I think that's where the debate is right now. And there, there's pushback from a lot of countries on this, because the fear is that the enforcement mechanism is going to be conditioned development aid. That if you don't use your development aid in these ways to meet the treaty, then we're going to pull it. Um, and if you're desperately in need of development aid after any sort of event and it gets conditioned, then you're going to comply. But that's kind of a form of coercion, right? Where you say, you, you don't have to take this money. You're, you know, you, you have this cyclone and you need this money. Um, but you don't have to take it, so we're not coercing you to take it, but you're actually desperately in need of it. So it is a form of coercion because you're suggesting that to get this money you have to do you have to comply with what we want you to comply with. So that will most likely be the, the strongest enforcement mechanism. I heard also another rumor that you could use the WTO, which is a quite World Trade Organization, which is a quite powerful global institution. They have a pretty high compliance rate. So if you get them involved, um, you know, I make this joke, the two strongest global institutions are FIFA, the football organization, and the WTO. Right? And you know, if you want to duplicate that kind of authority model and look at those two organizations. Well, and at, at least one of them is deeply corrupt from what we know, right? The, the FIFA. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the WTO. <laughs> well, well, no. So, so you know, we, we, we could have debates about this, but it's very interesting. I was just thinking about the WTO as you started speaking, and I'll tell you why. Because being someone who's been a bit of a student of the realities of communist China vis-a-vis -vis the international system and how they've used it, you know, there's, there is a high level of crimes to w, in, for the WTO, except for communist China. Right. They use the system to enforce compliance around other countries, but they themselves are 
right. constantly, egregiously out of compliance. And actually, I would argue, you know, the global system has funded their rise through this right. particular mechanism. So I, I, I also would be against a treaty for precisely this reason. <laughs> well, yeah. well, strong states are always able to push back. So where the WTO is very powerful is on weaker states or, or smaller states because they have no pushback on it. They, they, they have to comply quite quickly or they're going to feel the force of the WTO. Right. You know, China's in a position where it can push back and it can, but, you know, the United States does this too, right? Um, but but just I'll just jump in. The irony is that you know China was allowed in as a, in a as a special case. They hadn't actually met the accession requirements, right? right? Yeah. And because and the U.S. said, we trust these guys. We're gonna we're, we'll, we'll, we we think we should let them in. I I don't think anyone would argue that they've you know been true to that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, please, yeah. yeah. So, but my, my point is, now we have a treaty, well, right? And we're all signing it. We're and talking we, about a treaty. I don't right. think anyone signed it yet. <laughs> well, no, okay, fi fine, but, but it's going fast. It just moves There's fast. this really, intra I mean, what moves fast in these international organizations? Not a lot, yeah. okay, right? Yeah. This is moving fast. And I, I want you to comment. If I'm wrong, you you. No, you, they're moving, you, you, they're you moving extremely <laughs> fast. Um, without a lot of input. Without a lot of input. Right. So if you look at the pandemic fund, that thing moved super fast, and there was no uh, civil society organizations involved. They finally, after setting the foundations of what the fund was going to be and where it was going to be and how it was going to be managed, they allowed two seats on there. Mm -hmm. But the nomination process, there's also, well, how were they nominated? And are, why are they, you know, it's the same old civil society organizations that are in these other organizations, too. And, now, the argument for that is that creates better networks so people know what other, other people are doing in other institutions. But you could also say that also fosters groupthink, mm. right, and enclave thinking. So, you know, my whole position on this is, you know, yeah, maybe we need a pandemic fund. Maybe we don't need a pandemic fund. But let's, can we just slow down and think about, do we want it housed in the World Bank? Do we want it to be operated like an FIF? Um, what, what is an FIF? It's a, a financial intermediary fund. It's like a, it's, it's like a bank account for. So the global fund has their money in the as a as a fief inside the World Bank, and their secretariat is separate. The the pandemic fund, this, uh, the governing body is inside. They've decided to keep the, the governing body inside the World Bank. Now, you know what I'm curious about is, you know, why were those certain decisions made? We know that you can run these these funds in different ways, manage them in different ways. Why were certain ways chosen and other ways not chosen and who made those decisions and how those decisions were made and where were the inputs and what was the debate about? Um, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm curious about. And it's very hard to find that information. Some minutes are available, some are, are not available, some you can request, some you won't get back. And with the idea that if we could just slow down and think about it a little bit more, I bet you we could come up with a better, if we're gonna have a fund, a better way of having a fund. Any organization is, is organic, right? It's, it's self-preserving in a way. So, you know, when you're talking, when money, like 30 billion is being discussed, uh, and you're the WHO, or you're the World Bank, or you're the Gavi Alliance, or you're the Global Fund, um, you want to be part of that. And some of that might be for good reasons, like we think we do good work, and we think we can add value here, and use that money in real positive ways. Some of it's just self-sustaining, um, some of it is moving up the hierarchical rank of who's a more important institution. I think that all plays out, and these things um, 
were taking, these debates were taking place largely between the G7 and the G20 about where, where are we going to house these? Uh, who's going to be responsible for the, the, the pandemic fund? How is it going to look? Um, uh, and those interests were all playing out there. Um, and so when we were doing the costumes for the WHO, they wanted to generate their numbers and the World Bank were generating their numbers with, for the, the G20. And it became very clear to me that they were all going to come around the same number, um, rega regardless of the methods of how that you would generate the number. And that, that was because somewhere in the G20, it was already determined that that's the number. And so we were kind of meeting a number instead of inductively figuring out, well, what would it cost? You know? And the numbers we were looking at were far, far less than $31.1 Given that we've witnessed, the, I think, undeniably, the largest upward transfer of wealth in history over the past three years, right. um, <laughs> there's a lot of suspicion about big numbers these days and where those numbers might come from and who might be benefiting from it at the top of the food chain, so Absolutely. to speak. Absolutely. Well, the big winners of the 31.1 will be, because um, there's a large package for research and development, and there's a lot of vaccines, and for surveillance systems, and for field epidemiology and stuff like that. But some of those are good, right? <laughs> and they're public goods. It's good to have a field epidemiologist out there collecting and surveying, and then you, you pass that public good up. Here, we have some information on a new virus or a pathogen of some sort. Uh, and then it immediately gets shifted into a private good. Um, so, you know, this is public money, this 31. It might be partly financed by the private sector. Who, know, who knows? Um, but, you know, you're taking a public good, information about a pathogen that's potentially or not you know, dangerous, but we should know. Uh, and then you're turning it into a private good. And we do that with flu, right, for flu countermeasures, you know. Uh, every country collects their flu samples and sends them into these five WHO laboratories. And the WHO laboratories looks for the ones that they think are going to be the most suspicious. And then they send those out to pharmaceutical companies to make the countermeasures. Um, public good turns into a private good. So when you have that relationship, the interests come in right there. You know, who's going to get access to that material? that raw material, who's going to be able to make uh, pharmaceutical countermeasures out of that material. And profit. Uh, and profit. Said. And so these are big interests. And countries have interests too, because as we saw with the, the, the vaccines we did have, you know, AstraZeneca was a British product. And, you know, they quickly, you know, made that a national product. And, you know, Pfizer was a U.S. product. And, you know, there's prestige, there's politics, there's money, there's protecting your industries, and all those kind of factors played out. Let's just talk about your analysis here, you know. You, you were intimating that this 31 billion is not remotely achievable, that there's this huge, as you describe it, opportunity cost. Right. Trying, even trying to achieve that, and I'm kind of reading in a little bit here, will actually cause a lot of harm. So explain this to me. So um, we ran a series of models to see if we can meet these costs. And so the first one we ran, can nations afford this 26 billion annually? And what would that take? So we looked at um, growth and assuming a certain percentage of GDP growth by, that, by low and middle income countries. And we found that 
they would have to spend 77% of that new growth, um, money from that new growth on PPR exclusively in their health system. And, and PPR being? Pandemic preparedness and response, yes. Got so, it. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, to, to meet this 31.1 this number, or the 26 billion component of it. Over three quarters of their growth money, like for the entire country. Would have to be sunk into this. And so that's just unfeasible, right? That's not going to happen. So it's, it's, it's an untenable no. number. Um, and then we, you know, we were looking at the, the only way for us to meet the global number would be if um, high-income countries significantly. So we assumed a 2.5% growth between now to 2027 for, for health. Um, and we found that even under our best case scenario, where um, all the countries paid, we still wouldn't be able to make that, that amount. So that's also an untenable number. So the only way to, make, to meet these um, is, if we want to make to meet them, is by injecting a significantly more amount of money on overseas development assistance for health than we do now and dedicating more of that towards pandemic preparedness and response. So what did you do here? You either have to find new innovative methods of financing these things, or you need to rethink and prioritize those five buckets uh, of, for pandemic preparedness and response and prioritize where's the best value for money and uh, what ones are gonna have the greatest effect. So it goes back to your cost-benefit analysis, right? Um, and that's probably where we're going to go with this, because at the moment, the pandemic fund only has a billion seven in it. So, that they're, you know, so they're not already generating the numbers that they need. So that means I think we're going to have to rethink our approach and come up with prioritization models that, OK, what are the big key priorities? Um, and, and how do we finance them with the money that we have? Concern for me is how do we make those determinations of what are the priorities and what's not the priorities and where the money goes. That, that's what worries me because I think at the global level, um, global health governance is not fit for purpose. And it doesn't represent a vast majority of global needs and wants and desires and people on the ground and what's going to affect them. It, like, it gets captured. Right. right. It gets captured. Well, so this is, I keep, I'm thinking back to what you said, that there's these epistemically important players, I think, as you describe Epistemic them, authorities, epi Epistemic them. authorities yeah. that, you know, for example, the head of a big pharmaceutical company. I'm just to give it well, the a casual Lancet. example. The Lancet. Right. A, sp a special uh, issue of the Lancet. You know, a commission on X has a massive amount of epistemic authority. People look at it and say, oh, it's in the Lancet. It must be, this must be definitive. Um, oh, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, they know more about pharmaceuticals than anyone, so it must be, must be definitive. The WHO, right? They're the ones who are supposed to be coordinating all these pol policies. So they, you know, they must be definitive. And it's never that easy. I don't think it's ever that easy. And we should... Those authorities should be giving, I call it reason giving. There needs to be more reason giving within the political process. So I'm, I'm all about actually long, extending things, adding more deliberation, coming better at intersubjective agreement. And the only way you get there is by reason giving. Why do you think that that's going to be the best way to go? Well, this is what I think. And I tell you that, and you tell me, and it's all done in good faith, hopefully. And you come to some kind of agreement. And there's just not the mechanisms available 
The World Health Assembly is two weeks long. There's a million subcommittees. It's, it's impossible to know. Most countries can't put members in all those committees. So you know you have a team of four and there's 20 committees, parallel committees going on. Uh, there's just no mechanism for that kind of dialogue in a way that's meaningful or legitimate. And, and that's where big interests with big money behind them or power behind them, like the United States or China or other countries, can capture those processes and steer agendas very strongly. Well, for better or for worse. There's this inordinate focus on this va new vaccine technology as being an important part of what we do. Right? Whereas, you know, from where I sit, I see this as a largely failed technology, right? right? And so, but there seems to be a doubling down, perhaps because of these epistemic authorities, I love this term, um, that don't reflect the reality being experienced on the ground, both in terms of effectiveness, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, but also, you know, gr greater than admitted to harms around the products themselves. Right, so it's it's a it's an awkward social phenomenon, and I don't think I've have my head around it. I mean, the usual suspects are are, are there, right? Like people don't like to lose face, right? So people are going to double down because they don't want to lose face. Um, people get pathway dependent, right? Well, we've already invested so much money in this; it would you know it would be a huge loss if we shifted directions now. People don't like to admit they're wrong. Governments don't admit they're wrong anymore. Um, they never say, oh, we got this wrong. You have a group on one side trying to give you a universal answer to health, and you have a group on another side trying to give you a, a universal explanation for what happened, <laughs> and you're not going to be able to do either one of those. It's way more complex than that, and it's more nuanced and sophisticated and multi-layered. And so, you know, on both sides, the critics and the advocates, um, these, these universal explanations, these simplified universal explanations, aren't going to capture. It's, un, it's not the reality on the ground because it's much dirtier, complex, overlapping, contradictory. If I was a philosopher, I'd say dialectic, where it's both good and bad at the same time. And, you know, um, it, I think that's the big question in the next 10 years is to try to figure out this social phenomenon that you talk about. Well, Garrett Brown, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you all for joining Garrett Brown and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.